You may be seated today. I um, want to thank you all for being here and give you just a very brief instruction because I don't want to rob time from really what we're here to do tonight. Um, thank you for being here on night one. I know there are people who will be here for week two because I probably texted many of you and other people that aren't here tonight. I was pinging people all afternoon because I believe in what we're going to do tonight. Um, if I've told it to people, like people say, well, I just want to go deep in the word. And I'm like, well, what does that mean? And so I want to encourage you a couple things. Uh, one, tonight we're, we're embryonic in our beginnings, and so the, the font may appear small to you. I want to encourage you to scoot up. It's okay. It's okay. God will be able to still meet you at the front just as much as he meets you anywhere. So if you're not able to see, then take this as an opportunity to adjust. Even mid-talk, if you're interested, just get up. And you just come, all right? He, he, he doesn't know what we're like. He doesn't know how we handle snakes and everything, okay? So you just, you just do that, all right? Um, but all kidding aside, I'm glad Jeff is here. Uh, Dr. Jeff, we'll call him Jeff from this day forward. But Jeff has been an early mentor of me in my early years of ministry. I was opportunity to be a, a student pastor to his teenage boys. And then also being able to serve with him. He is a director of missions for local Baptist churches. And so let me tell you what that means. He's a pastor to pastors. Um, he's constantly helping churches that are pastorless. He helps churches in difficult times and he encourages and equips pastors to have a healthy church where they are. So Lord willing that those things don't happen, but uh, he is here to hold some things together at an organizational level as a servant to churches. And I'm excited to have him come and lead us through this because he is more deeply qualified to do this. And so when I called him and he was like, yeah, yeah, that's a good idea. And I'm happy to help you. I was like, really? Uh, well, that would be great. So we're excited that we welcome Jeff and uh, we're excited about leaning into this study tonight. So I'm going to turn it over to Jeff. He is going to talk uh, for as long as he sees fit. And then we're going to break into groups. We'll have a breakout time each week, similar to what we did in Missional Essentials. Um, and so we'll, we'll have a little breakout time Please note, we're, we are blocking 6.30 to 8. So a lot of times, you know, 7.45, I feel this pressure to be quiet. We're going to press to 8. I mean, it just it's just the way we are to get through this in a way that's going to add value to you. So without further ado, Dr. Jeff. Amen. Thanks, Lee. I want to thank Lee and Forefront for the opportunity to be here. My name is Jeff Thompson. I'm the Associational Mission Strategist is the name they're going with. It's, you may know DOM or Associational Missionary if you've been around Baptist. If you've not, Southern Baptist, Arkansas Baptist, and here in our association, the River Valley, Sebastian, Logan Counties, and, and a little bit of uh, here and there, the 60 churches that are a part of Great Commission Baptist Association. Used to be called Concord. We just, same group, same people, same everything. We, we changed our name because we, we wanted to focus on our mission, which is to see a healthy Great Commission Baptist Church for every thousand households in the River Valley. It's just that simple. And a whole lot of what we do is strategizing about where do we need new churches, where do we need to strengthen churches, those kind of things. But to have a healthy church, you have to have a church that is rooted and grounded in the Word of God, that their doctrine, their actions, everything about them is coming out of a solid biblical base. So that's what we're going to spend Wednesdays doing is helping Forefront be a church 
that doesn't just have a breadth of knowledge of the Word, but has a depth of knowledge of the Word of God and is obedient to it. Now, Stephen Barry can tell you, where would Stephen go? I lost him. There, he's way there in the back. He, he took this class as the, as the 45-hour regular academic kind of class version. So what you're going to be getting between now and the first, second Sunday in December, or Wednesday in December with just a few skips, is the abridged version of the lectures. When I say abridged, we've spent a little over 45, and the way I would run along, probably closer to 50-something hours together in class. We're going to do it in about 20. So you're not getting everything that's in the lecture, but if you are just Gung-ho, and if you say, Mark, if you decide you want to see if you still got that mojo, you can get academic credit, baccalaureate academic credit. It is a 300-level course or a junior-level course at a Spurgeon College. You can enroll in that course from right here at Forefront. We've got your very own little section. But if you do that, you'll need to get with me because I've got a couple of three books you've got to read and write up. You've got a 20-page exegesis you need to do before the end of December. But that will give you a much better idea of what, uh, of what Stephen and Lee went through when they took this, more than just sitting in on the lecture and taking a few notes. There's some other work for the academic credit. So if you're interested in that, talk to me after. You've got about two or three weeks to decide and enroll if you want to. Okay, with that said, we're going to start tonight. And we're going to begin at the, uh, the very core about how to handle... Bible translations. Then we're going to look into just a big overview of grasping God's Word. Now the picture you see up there is of the second edition. The fourth edition has a little more colorful looking front, has that kind of green and has the town and all that in color. So um, you can get that on Amazon.com. You can get it as a digital version on your Kindle. I would encourage you, even if you're not going to do this for academic credit, this is a textbook that's worth having because it's very practical and has a lot of sections that quite honestly, I'm not going to have time to go into everything that's in the book. I'm not going to read it to you. We're going to go over the highlights so that you'll have a, a concept. It'd be worth getting. I'm going to be throwing out a lot of other resources. If I throw out something and you go, whoa, I didn't get that, catch me after, ask Lee. I'll email it. I'll text it to you. Don't, don't get worried about missing something. We can get you whatever you need. Starting there, how many of you have, have, your, have a paper Bible tonight? You got a paper Bible? Hold up your paper Bible. Let me see it. Okay. How many of you have 27 Bibles on your phone like I do tonight? Okay. Regardless, I know sometimes people say, oh man, I've got a Bible Bible. I've got a paper Bible. I'm, I am thrilled. For, I've, I promise you, I have more paper Bibles than you all. Lee, how many do you have? Okay, are you north of 40? Okay, you're under 40, then I'm pretty safe. I, I promise you, I have more Bibles than you all. But the Bible, the Word of God, all of us have, unless, unless you want to pull out your, your Greek New Testament or your Hebrew Old Testament, we are all working from a translation of Scripture. Okay? And we're going to talk tonight about what that means and about how to, how to kind of look at it and choose the translation you use for what you're doing. That's where we're going to start. Now, we're doing this kind of like class. So, unlike when Lee preaches, I'm not... Oh, man. 
recently. Mate, there, finally, I finally got it. I don't need amens. If I say something, if I get to going too fast or what have you, just like in class in school, raise your hand and just say, whoa, I will stop as soon as I hit a good slot and you can ask anything you want. I think Stephen will tell you, no, now, don't ask me like whether the Sooners are going to beat the Racerbacks whenever they come to the SEC or anything like that. But if it's related to our subject matter, you can ask me anything, that's fine. So we'll, we'll stop. We're going to have a couple of times when I'll stop and ask you, is everybody still with me? Are we all okay? And we'll break into, into a few little small groups along the way. And I want to have you all discuss some things and get feedback. So it's going to be, if you want to use a really big word, it is going to be a dialogical class, meaning there's dialogue, there's back and forth as we go. It's not just going to be straight lecture. With all that said, I want to start by looking at Bible translations. So my first question to you is, where do I point, Leaf, to make this thing work? Oh, it is now. That even works better. Who wrote the Bible? Who wrote the Bible? Men wrote the Bible? Can you name two or three of them? Paul, he wrote a lot of the Bible, didn't he? Who else? Yeah, Moses covered five big books. Okay, but, but all those guys were co-authors, if you will, or they were the pen writers in. Who, who's, the, who's the writer of the Bible that that went from Genesis to Revelation. God did. Through inspiration, God used various human authors to write the Bible. All Scripture is God-breathed, 2 Timothy tells us. The, the way that, that I would describe it, if you want to imagine, think of, think of how you sign your name. Okay? You sign your name the same way every time, right? Does your signature look different if you use a big old fat Sharpie? Or if you use a fountain pen? Or if you use a number two pencil? Or if you use a ballpoint pen? Or if you use a magic marker? Or if you use a crayon? Or if you use that big fat sidewalk chalk? Does all of that look different? I mean, can you tell what medium was used? When we think of the men that God used to write Scripture, to, to, to inspire and to give the original message, the same God reached down and took different lives. And those lives had context. They had personality. They had vocabulary. They had all those things. And He used them to write his word. Now, you can see when you look on the pages of Scripture the difference between Paul and John, the difference between Peter and Matthew, the difference between Moses and David. You can look and you can go, you know what? I, that this sounds like Paul, or that sounds like David, or that sounds like Asaph in the Psalms. But you can also see when you look at the script of Scripture, the hand of God on every page and every letter. So, first thing to remember is the, the Bible is a divine human book. Now, it's a divine book in the way that no other book is. It is the 
inerrant, infallible, inspired Word of God from beginning to end. If you want to look at the, at the, at the deep thoughts on how do we understand inspiration of Scripture, there's a um, paper that came out in the, the late 80s called the Chicago Statement on Inerrancy. I would recommend downloading that. That is about 50 or 60 of the, some of the best New Testament, Old Testament scholars today that wrote down what does it mean to believe in the inspiration of Scripture, the inerrancy of Scripture uh, that it's in. They did a great job of answering all kinds of, of deep academic questions. But at the end of the day, when we look at the Bible, it's important for us to remember God chose to use men. He didn't have to. He could have dropped it out of the sky. But He chose to use those He had called to deliver His message to His people. God always wants to be in partnership with those that follow Him. Now, I have a hand. Lee, if you've got someone, give me a hand. I will help them on this part. Just go ahead and hit those out and hand those out. We're going to be on this section. What you, the Chicago Statement on Inerrancy. I will, I will send a link to Lee and let him have it where he can print it out or have a link for all you guys. Whenever we look at our English Bible and ask the question, how did we get it? You'll see a chart on one of those pages looks something like this. Starts at the very top. The very top says we have a divine author. God, through the person of the Holy Spirit, has breathed every word of Scripture. He is the divine author. The human author is who God spoke to in a myriad of ways. When God spoke to the human author, whether that was Moses or whether that was Isaiah, or Jeremiah, or Nahum, whether that was Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, whether that was the Apostle Paul, the divine author spoke to the human author. The human author, either by his own hand, or through the use of what's called an amanuasis, which is just a way to say a secretary or someone that takes dictation for you, those words from God through man were put onto parchment. When it went on to that parchment, that became the original text of Scripture. Scripture was passed down for, for millennia by means of hand copying until the Gutenberg Press came along. Every copy of Scripture we have was taken by looking at an original or a, or a verified copy and handwriting painstakingly. The, the Word of God, and it was passed down and down. We have today, in the New, the New Testament, we have over 6,000 complete or partial manuscripts that are still exit, that were written, and they're written in very tight, showed in, uh, in class, they're written with no letters and spaces because, because the medium was a premium. It was, it was, it was, hard, it was hard written. The, the dividing out of words and spacing like we do and, and punctuation, all that, came later during translation. But as that was done, now, one of the questions that comes up every once in a while is, well, people are copying it. We know how sloppy everyone is today. Aren't there just lots and lots of mistakes in there? My answer would be, no. There aren't lots and lots of mistakes in there. There's a word that scholars used called a gloss. And a gloss is where there's a discrepancy between two copies. The discrepancies are going to run along the lines of 
Does the text say Jesus, the Son of God? Does the text say Jesus, God's Son? What happened there? Somebody, we don't know which copyist, transposed the order of Son of God and God's Son. It is a distinction without a difference. Is it saying anything different? No. Sometimes it would be whether or not something is singular or plural in a person's name. Whether or not the article was, was, was on or was left off of a, of a word. I say all that to tell you of all of the, the differences you'll see. And they end up being in the New Testament. There are probably around 150 places where there's, a, where there's a difference. If you look at a Greek New Testament, you'll see under the line in the footnotes, it will give you what is considered to be by scholars the best or the most likely original writing. And then it will give you a list of the different manuscripts that phrase it differently and show you what that is. So you'll be able to say, okay, what was in there? So when people say, yeah, it's not the same, that's what they're talking about. I can tell you after having read, there are, there are two places in the New Testament where there's significant debate about what was in the original manuscript and what is in the, what's called the, the, the critical text or the text that we have when we buy a Greek or Hebrew New Testament or Greek New Testament or Hebrew Old Testament today. The ending to the Gospel of Mark, the last, what, three, four verses of Mark? Yeah. Yeah, so there's, I mean, there's a, a section that is not in the oldest manuscripts, but it's in the most manuscripts. Across time, that has made it above the line, meaning we feel like that probably got left off or it got glossed off some of that way. So that's a difference. In John's Gospel, starting at John seven fifty nine, running down through verse 11, the story of the woman caught in adultery is another one that is, is missing from some manuscripts and is in older manuscripts. Those are the two places that you'd say, huh, does that story go in or out? I will tell you what I learned whenever I was taking my very first New Testament Greek class at seminary. The process of determining what's called the critical text, which is what we get down to next, the text that, that people put on the book for, for people to study Hebrew and Greek today. My professor looked at me and said, if it made it above the line, then I'm just going to consider it in the original. And the footnotes are the footnotes, and that's how to do it. Because you've got to, at some point, you've got to decide, what do I believe is the Word of God? What do, I, do I need to decide, is that really it or not? I don't see a distinction. So back when I was a 23-year-old young guy going in, I made this decision. I looked at all that had gone in to creating the, the, the critical text, the, the, the original language copies that we have today. And I said, anything that made it above the line, and that line's not drawn by Baptist or by Methodist or by Episcopalians. Or it's drawn by Christian scholars from across the world and across the theological spectrum. And they said, you know, we weigh out all the different copies we have, the histories they have, and all that in. That's where we're at. So, from my simple mind, you'll read, everyone will say that, that, that the Bible is inspired, inerrant, all of those things in the originals. Well, we don't have an original. We have 
critical texts that have come down across the centuries. I do my line, as far as I'm concerned, I know with the New Testament, we've been able to put together the most conservative scholar, and by conservative I don't mean biblically or theologically conservative, I mean the, the trying their hardest not to fudge, would say we have at least 98%, somewhere between 98 and 99.5% of the original text recreated by the use of manuscript comparison today. And I've told you the two big chunks that are debated. None of them have any bearing on anything theological, any matter of faith or matter of doctrine. Now, oddly enough, the Hebrew Bible was harder because the Hebrew Bible, whatever they would wear out a manuscript, they would cut it up, they would tear it up, burn it, they would do something to, to, to show reverence for it, the same way we do a flag when it goes out of commission. And so the oldest copies of the Hebrew text that we had up until the finding of the Dead Sea Scrolls only dated back to about the, uh, the late 13th century. Then we found the Dead Sea Scrolls. And that rolled it back almost, was it almost 800 years? I don't have my exact number in. But they were older by, literally by multiple centuries. I believe it, I believe it was a little over 800 years. It may have been, uh, it may have been more in the seven range. But here's what they discovered when they compared that text spanning multiple centuries. They found there was other than the, the accent marks in a place or two, the copies were, were identical. Why? Because back in that day, it was a huge, huge thing to make sure you got it right. They checked and double-checked and double-checked. And they, wouldn't, they would not complete a copy and authorize it until they knew they had it right. I say all that to tell you the degree of confidence we can have in our critical text, our original language text today, is just sky high. There is no other piece of historical literature from any culture that comes anywhere even marginally close to what we have in Scripture. Now, I know I just spent a ton of time laying out how we got to critical text, but it's so important because if you have people wonder and doubt Scripture, They'll usually, that's usually where they'll start. They'll say, well, you don't know, you don't know, you don't know. I'm telling you, we know. People may debate whether or not they want to believe the Bible, but whether or not we have the Bible is not up for debate. Okay, I've gone through one of the heavier, thicker chunks. Questions? Lee has a question. The Apocrypha and all that in there? I'll touch on it a little bit. We'll get to it deeper later in. The Apocrypha, the ending of the book of Malachi, there comes what is called the Great Silence. The, the minor prophets end and the Old Testament ends. And there is a 400-year period of silence. Now, it's silent in that there's no inspired Scripture given. It's not silent in that they were still Jews and being and doing. First, second, Maccabees were written 
uh, Bell and the Dragon was written. There are several books from what's called the the uh, the temple period, the that that first temple period, that make up uh, the Apocrypha. The Apocrypha is important in Catholic theology because it is out of the Apocrypha that in the Middle Ages Catholic scholars came up with the idea of purgatory, and then purgatory is a way to raise money. I'll get into the history part of that some other time. Those are important historical texts. In fact, if you read the book of Jude and you read what's called the the first book of Enoch, which is an apocryphal book, you'll see that that Jude in the New Testament uses, quotes, and alludes to several different themes from Enoch that would have been very common and and well-known at that time. But neither the the Septuagint, which is a, a Greek translation of the Old Testament, does not include the Apocrypha. The, uh, the Hebrew Bible to this day, the Old Testament, does not include the Apocrypha. So, so while we recognize that they are, they are worth studying, they, they give us a lot of context, they give us pictures of what life was like right before the coming of Christ, but we do not consider them to be inspired Scripture. Uh, I would say if you want to look at that, now the Catholic Church did. They chose to include whenever they came up with their list. But, uh, and we'll get to it, I think we'll get to it, the, uh, the, the closing of the canon in the, in the fourth century, whenever the early church said these are the inspired books, they did not include the Apocrypha. And that's pretty much where we drew our line. What did Jesus use and then, and then what do we agree about? And so that was the, the closing there. The Apocrypha. If you really, really are just super interested into it, I can recommend two or three books on uh, the Second Temple period and all that in that'll that'll lay it out more for you. Any other question? Yes. Hebrew into English. Yes, that's where we're fixing it. I've, I've so far I've only got us down this list to what's called the critical text, which is the Greek or Hebrew. Transla- not translation, but copies that are being held by translators whenever they translate our English Bible or a German Bible or, or any, other, any of the other various translations. The translation is always going to come out of the Greek and Hebrew. And I wanted to lay down our foundation on where did the Greek and Hebrew that we get it, our English translations from, come from. And it's, it's a little bit important because there are a couple of different... Um, Copies the current currently what's called uh, Nestle Nestle and Arndt's 29th edition is the is the Greek edition that I would say is the is the best edition out in print. Uh, the uh, I think the Masoretic text of the Old Testament is the is the best for the Hebrew Bible. But there'll be a couple of variations where people say, "Well, yeah, I use we use this one or that one." It has to do with how many how many Manuscript copies were available whenever those were compiled. No, English is not going to be... Occasionally, if people don't have access to original languages with with somebody that's a native speaker, they they may paraphrase English into something else. But... Almost all translation, when you talk about like Wycliffe Bible translators, Wycliffe is always going to start with 
the Hebrew and the Greek, and then they're going to have their translator learn the target language well enough to be able to translate from Hebrew or Greek into the target language. And the only times they don't do that or won't do that is if there's no one with, with skill in the target language to be able to translate. Uh, and a lot of times it'll end up being like uh, in, uh, if you go down in, in parts of South America where they're, they're working with tribal groups in the, up in the, the Andes, in, in, the, uh, in the Amazon region or somewhere like that, it may be that the person that's translating, that their original language, the language that they have access to is Spanish. So they may take a Spanish Bible and translate from a Spanish Bible into to that. If you go into, the, into Asia, it'll depend on what the, the target language is. But the goal is always, whenever you're doing a translation, to get to the place that someone that speaks the target language, whether it be English, Spanish, whatever, is able to go back to the Hebrew and the Greek and translate from Hebrew and Greek into whatever their native language is. And, and we, are, we are blessed. I just cannot even tell you how blessed we are to be English speakers. Because as English speakers, we have access to an abundance of good and faithful translations. Um, the way that happens is either a translator, and if you have a translation, it's going to be done by one, maybe two people. If you have a version, it's going to have been done by a committee, usually anywhere from 14 or 15 on the low end, upwards of 100, 150 scholars that will work on that translation. They'll break it down into sub-teams, They'll read, they'll discuss what's the best way to translate it, and, and they'll go from there. That'll get you to the English translation, which gets you to the modern reader. Now, I want to move real quick and look. These are just several current popular modern translations. This is in no way even close to an exhaustive list. The New American Standard Bible, the New King James, the New Revised Standard Version, the New International Version, the New Living Translation... The English Standard Version, the Holman Christian Standard Bible, the Christian Standard Bible. I go on and on, the Net Bible, the, we've named several. How many of you, does anybody have a, a version or a translation that they use that's not on that list, that's kind of your go-to Bible? Good, man, I managed to, I managed to catch everybody, at least in my, in my list of quicks. There are many, many. Now, I want to talk about the difficulties in translation. Before, prior to coming here, I pastored for, for 14 years, but I also served five years in the international mission field in uh, the Philippines. And uh, we work with Cebuano speakers, so we learned Cebuano when we went to the Philippines. It was there that I learned no two languages are exactly alike. No two words are exactly alike in uh, any language. No vocabularies, they, they vary greatly in size in how many words a language has. Language utilizes different syntax. One of the interesting things when we worked with, with folks out of Asia and China is that some languages don't give you the, the, the verb. You don't know who is the subject and who's the direct object of a sentence until you get to the very, very end. 
it's kind of an interesting thing because as they'll talk, they'll be reading body language on whoever they're talking to, and they can change the whole meaning of the sentence before they get to the end. They're like, ooh, he doesn't like what I'm saying. I'm going to change this to where I'm saying it about somebody else. Okay, that's weird. We don't do that in English. In English, you pretty well know up front who's, your, who's the subject, who's the verb, where's it going. Some languages do not use gender. When we learned Cebuano, it confused the heck out of me. I'm used to he, she. Cebuano doesn't use he or she. They don't, they don't have, if you want to know someone is, they'll say, ah, that is your, and they'll say your ixun, which means your near relative, and then they'll say either babai or lalaki, which means they'll either say my brother or my sibling who is a boy, that's my brother. My sibling who is a girl, that's my sister. But whenever they say, they don't say my brother or my sister, they'll say ixun, which just means that's somebody that was born from the same parents I was. And you're left wondering, well, is it a guy or a girl? They don't have aunt and uncle. They have my mother's or my father's Iksun. And they'll say my parents Iksun. And you're going, wait, so is that a maternal uncle or is that a whatever? But when they use pronouns, when they say we, they have one word that is we, meaning me and Mark, the two of us. We are together and it is us. They also have a word that says we, me and Mark, but not Lee. Lee is out of this. When I say we, I don't mean you. I mean me and him. You're, you're separate. Because for them, it's important to know, am I in or out of this relationship? So all of their pronouns are designed to say, you are in or you are out. There are times that comes in real handy. There are times it's just really confusing. Languages are different. I say that to say they have different stylistic preferences, the, or, the word order that things go in. So a translation entails reproducing the meaning of the text. From one, it's in one language, the source language, and you want to get that meaning as close as possible in the target language. That's what translation is. Now, there are two approaches to translation. You can look at the back side of your sheet in just a minute. One is called the formal approach. The other is called the functional approach. Okay? A formal approach attempts to maintain as much as possible the structure of the source language and it is less sensitive to the receptor language. So that means it's trying as much as possible to go word for word in as close to the same order as the original language. If you've ever looked at a um, come on, Lee, give me my word. Um, no, no, no. English is set interlinear. If you've ever looked at an interlinear Bible, an interlinear Bible will either write it out in Greek and put English right on top, or it'll write it out in English and put the Greek right underneath. But, but if it's a true interlinear, it'll start with the, with the host language, with the original language, and it'll give you the translation. If you ever read the Bible from an interlinear, and you read the English, you are wondering what in the world is going on because they, they don't use, they don't come anywhere close to the sophomore English that I learned in high school for, for proper grammar. So the translator 
will put it in as close to the original language order as still makes sense in the target language. That's called, that's called a formal result. Now, a functional approach takes a thought for thought and focuses on today's language. It is less sensitive to the source language. Have any of you ever worked with translators whenever you were speaking, or like you're speaking and, and someone's translating for you? If you ever do that, what you'll discover, the best way you can do it is to speak in short sentences. Uh, sometimes people will try to like say, my name is... Okay, that'll drive your translator crazy. Because they don't know what you're trying to say. They don't know which word to use. So it's better to say, my name is Jeff. And then translators will say, oh, me amo is Jeff. Spanish is a little bit easier. Uh, when you do that, you listen to the thought, and then you try to put kind of thought for thought, paragraph for paragraph in. Now, it makes it much easier to understand in the target language, but it's much shorter lived as a translation because when you do that, you'll use a lot of idioms, you'll use a lot of slang, and as you do that, it'll age. Have any of you ever read, uh, Eugene Peterson did a translation called The Message, and it came out in the late, I guess it came out in the late 80s maybe the early 90s on some of the, the ends, but it was in the 80s. Okay, I graduated high school in 1983. I'm telling you, the message was like spot-on language in the mid-80s. The problem is, by the mid-90s, it sounded kind of weird. And by today, people read it and go, what is that old man thinking? Why did he say it that way? Nobody talks like that. Because English moves pretty quickly, and what sounded cool in 1980 sounds just horrible. That, by contrast, the New American Standard, uh, it's been updated recently, but it, it was printed in 1905, and while it was a little bit more stilted in English, it held up. It sounded just as good in 1985 as it did in 1905 because it was much more of a, uh, of a formal equivalence kind of a, a translation. When you look at your translation, I would guess most of you don't know this, but if you'll go to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, and then go left about five pages, you'll have what's called the, some of them will call it a preamble, some of them will call it a, a statement or whatever, but it'll list in there, It'll tell you who the translating committee was. There'll be a list of names of who all was on it. They will talk about why they chose to do this translation. They will tell you what their translation philosophy was. It is important to look at your translation and see what is the translation philosophy that they use. Now you're thinking, Jeff, why do I care what their philosophy Well, because some of them, their number one goal was to write a translation that would be easy to read for modern readers. That, that is a perfectly legitimate philosophy to have. The problem is, that means they're translating paragraphs, not sentences. Now, if they say, no, our translation philosophy is we want to be 
as close to the original as possible, that can be great. And if you're going to do deep Bible study and you want to, and you want to diagram the, uh, the passage and see how it breaks down and where verbs fit and all that, it's really good. But it can make it really hard to read. It can make it a little bit laborious to read. So it's important to know what was the philosophy and what were they writing for? What was their goal? Um, whenever, you, whenever you look at it that way, you'll discover there's a continuum. On this left side, it says more formal. That means they were using a much tighter word-for-word translation. On this end, it's more functional. That's going to be much more a thought-for-thought translation. You'll see where like King James, American Standard, NSB, New King James, RSV, Holman, the Net Bible, the New American Bible, (coughs) the NIV, the TNIV, the uh, NIRV, the New Jerusalem Bible, then the New Century Version, the New Living Translation, the Good News Bible, all those go more. Now, no translation is 100% either one. Uh, You've got to do, you've got to translate words, so you're going to have some formal to it. You've got to try to translate the meaning, which means you're going to, you're going to try to put it in the right order and you're going to jumble around. So there's no such thing as, as a strict, strict version, but they're all on that scale based on the philosophy behind what the translation committee was doing. Yes? It is sort of like, yeah, that's where, that's like whenever, whenever Lee talked about the, uh, the use of the Apocrypha, one of the ways the Apocrypha is really useful is to be able to see how Hebrew, it, like what idioms meant. Now, if you were to take modern Hebrew, it'd be really hard to then take modern Hebrew from early 1900s and translate with it. Now, a couple of things that really helped Hebrew out a lot. Hebrew was passed down, and and the Old Testament writings, a lot of that was learned in Hebrew school, at at synagogue or at a Hebrew school. So that vocabulary, the the Old Testament vocabulary, was a pretty static vocabulary. They didn't change that. Now, they would add new words. uh, And um, like you think of all the things that have been invented or have come around since 1900. There's no Old Testament Hebrew or, Old, or New Testament Greek word for car or auto or any other. I mean, so those things pop up, but the theological terms are pretty static. In fact, if you learn just 300 Greek words, you've learned 80% of the Greek New Testament. When you get to 500, you're up even better than that. So there are a lot of words, that, but what do you do with words that only appear once or twice? Well, you go back to other writings in that language at the time to get definition and context. And that's how, that's how the critical text is formed. It's formed by looking at what was it. And you, and you look, um, you'll see it with the Supreme Court a lot of times when they'll talk about original meaning and all that kind of stuff. The way you discover that is to go back and look at other writings in the same language from the same era or time period. And uh, one of the really unique things that has hit with us, there was not a lot of change in, in broad culture until, until around the Middle Ages, 
you started seeing a lot of culture move. But when you got to the Enlightenment, and then whenever you got to the Industrial Revolution, and the Gutenberg Press, and those things starting to come out in the, somewhere between the 14th and the 16th, 17th century, things really started picking up. And all languages started having to explode their vocabulary to describe new things. So that'd be a problem, but we've got a we've got a pretty fixed we've got a pretty fixed vocabulary, a number of words, and then we also have a pretty fixed meaning because we have not only the the Old Testament Greek or the yeah the New Testament Greek and the Old Testament Hebrew, but we have a lot of other writings from that era or copies down that also talk. So you're able to look and read and see and say, no, that's what that word means. Look, it's used this, 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 and this. The um, as we run down the, and I'll share the link with Lee or he can get it for you, but the, the Christian Standard Bible, csbbible.com, it, it, has, it has what it calls optimal equivalency. It's a word they made up, but their philosophy, their translation philosophy is to use a formal or a word-for-word translation unless a word-for-word does not make sense in English. In other words, if you hit a spot of English and it's like, man, that is just, that's an idiom. We need to, we need to go thought for thought. They'll, they'll use thought for thought at those places. I think it makes a much better, uh, I, I like the CSB. That's, that's the, the Bible I use as my preaching and studying Bible right now, our translation. And I like it because it is, it's the most readable translation that has kept a high degree of, uh, of text comparison or, or of, of, of translation. Yeah. Yes? Uh, yes, I, think, I, I believe that versions are, are protected. I, I believe that what we have in the critical text, the, the Greek and the Hebrew today, I believe those are, are so indistinguishable from the original autographs that we don't have to wonder. We, we will wonder on some things. Usually it's things like, what was the number? You know, was it, was it 100? Was it 1,000? You know, how was that used? It, especially the Old Testament, in the, in the ancient Near East, when, when they would refer to numbers, they did a lot of what we would call uh, estimating or rounding. I mean, when we count, uh, uh, I'm, I'm a statistics kind of nerd. I like to be incredibly precise. I mean, I will, I will count, I will do head counts to know, okay, how many people are here tonight? It, you know, uh, in the ancient years, they'd say, there are a lot of people here. What does a lot of mean? Or they'll say, there's a multitude. I mean, for me, a multitude's at least 500, maybe 1,000. But a multitude, you guys packed it out and had 250. Would you say there was a multitude here Sunday? Yeah, I mean, that, that, what they were doing, they were, given, they were given reference like, compared to normal, it's more or less. That can get really frustrating. If you want the numbers to be exact, it can be frustrating. But if you go back and you read anything else in the area, you realize, no, they count by tens. I, I round to the nearest, I typically, when I'm doing head counts and stuff, I'll round to the nearest 25 or the nearest 50. 
So like if I do a count, I say, okay, there's about, yeah, there's about 40. I have no idea. If we were to count, there's, have you counted yet, Lee? Somebody were to count, there's, what is there? There's 5, 10, 15, 20, 25. There's 36 people here tonight. That's great. I can say 36. If somebody asked me how many people were here, you know what I'm going to say? Yeah, we had about 40. Why? Because when I did math, if it went over the five, you could round to the next 10. That's what they told me. So, I mean, that's, I'm going to round like that. Somebody that want to be really careful say, well, we had a little over 30. What are they doing? They're being conservative on it. But we would say anything between 30 and 40, we would consider to be an accurate number for tonight, wouldn't we? In terms of just about how many people were here. If you're going to estimate. Now, if I go back and you hear me say, they had 100, what are y'all going to say? Yeah, you're going to say, Brother Jeff is preacher talk. But if I go back and I say, man, I was really disappointed. I don't even know if they had a dozen. Well, same thing. I'm being, pes- I'm, I'm, I'm being negative. So sometimes you have to look at those things. I don't know, Brother Mark, I'm saying that to say, I don't know if we want exactitude in terms of, um, of like precise figures. I don't know that that'll always, the Hebrew doesn't always do that. But if we want exactitude in terms of, was it talking about people or theology, that'll be on the money. Now, translations, for me, translations, the more a translation tries to use a formal thing, I think the closer it is to being on the money. The more that it's using, uh, the more that it's using uh, equivalents, I think the more accurate it is for a period of time. Um, in other words, that translation is a really faithful translation. I, I don't know of any English version. It's really probably until you get like the TNIV. I'll give you a good for instance. When you read the, uh, when you read the translation philosophy of the Christian Standard Bible, when, when man or mankind was used to refer to everybody, they translate it people. It's anthropos, the plural of, of men. If it is obvious by context that that is referring to the entire group, they'll translate it people. When it's obvious that it's referring to something gender specific, they'll translate it by whichever gender uh, it entails. They did that to try to bring clarity in English. I've already told you about Savano. In Savano, that would not matter at all. But it does matter. It matters, and it matters there, which is why when the, the TNIV tried to, be, they, they tried to use a philosophy they called gender neutrality. So they tried to take all of the gender out of the English translation. Now, what's the problem with English? If you try to take gender out of English, it makes no sense. I mean, that... Gender is a part of the English language up until the last five years, ten years. It's an essential part of the English language. If you try to degender something, it loses its meaning, especially if it had gender in the original language. Whenever we talk about God as Father, man, that has, that has some incredible theological significance. Do I think God is male in the same way that that I am male? No, I mean, Jesus said in heaven, we're neither 
male nor female, it's not, the, it's not quite the same. But if we're talking about how is God understood in His role, God presents Himself as Father. He presents Christ as the Son, and Jesus Christ was born as a man, uh, as a physical man, as a XY chromosome man. Okay? That matters. You can't change that and not change the meaning. So that's why I say that, that translation philosophy is important. Because I think if you start with a translation philosophy that is in error, you're going to have a translation that's in error. The original text isn't in error, but your translation is. If your translation philosophy is solid and sound, you're going to have a very... I'm not a... I don't worry a lick about saying that when I hold up a Christian standard, a New American standard, a King James, a New King James, something like that, I have the inspired Word of God. That's what I'm reading from. I can get into some fringe. If you talk about, you know, what about the New World Translation? No, I don't think the New World Translation is an accurate translation. I don't think it's an inspired translation. I think they tried to do away with the Trinity in that translation. They tried to do away with the Incarnation. That's problematic. That changes the meaning of the original text. So, uh, it is important to, to look and to know. Now, I will tell you, I, I don't know of, of any legitimate modern version. Probably, that, the, probably the debate I'd have would be over the, the, the 90, the TNIV, uh, and they've since gone back and corrected uh, that in their, in their newer translations of. It's still using dynamic equivalents, and so I, I still think it, I think it is dated. A dynamic equivalent will be a, a solid translation for about 15 to 20 years. And then after that, it will become hard to understand because they used, they used uh, more modern, modern jargon and less, uh, less fixed stuff. Something that's more of a word-for-word -word or a formal translation will hold up most formal English translations hold up really, really well about being accurate for about 75 to 100 years. So it, it, that's, that's where it can make a difference. You'll see that. And that's where you want to look. Uh, like if somebody says they are trying to use gender-sensitive language or something like that in their translation philosophy, I recommend going to like to John 3.16. Uh, John 3.16 should be translated, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. If it translates, God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten child, then I'm like, why don't you use child? Because it doesn't say child. I mean, that, that's not, there's a Greek word for child, there's a Greek word for son, they use son. Why did, you, why did you do that? Well, because we didn't want to offend or do it. Okay, that, that's messed up. And that's, and that's deceptive. So that's where, that's where you want to look at the translation philosophy. If the translation philosophy takes seriously the original text and translates the original text as faithfully as they can, you're going to end up with a, a trustworthy, uh, uh, an, an errant. 
inspired. I, I wouldn't use inspired of a translation because, because a translation is, is working from that known. And inspiration is God has breathed the words. But I would say that translations that are done trying to honor the original text as, as God's word are going to be protected. Uh, and by protected, I mean, I think God keeps us from having to worry about the uh, uh, errors or untruth coming into the translation. And, and quite honestly, people are very, very upfront when they write those, those translation philosophies, and they'll tell you, we believe the Bible has been misused and abused by da-da-da-da-da, so we are not going to take miracles seriously. And they'll try to translate it out. Well, they told you up front, they are denying that, that they are denying that they are dealing with the Word of God. Well, if they're denying that in their translation philosophy, they're not going to end up with a good translation. If they say, here's what we believe about God's Word, talking about that critical text, they're going to be treating it, and they're going to be holding each other accountable to do that. That's, that's why you can have confidence in your English translations. Because they're not the thought of one man or two men or something like that. They are, they are from folks that take very seriously that God has spoken these words and that, and that they have been preserved across time so that we can know them, learn them, and translate them. Um, I'd say that about like the... Uh, are going to come close, I'd, I would maybe say the Coverdale English translation. I think God did some miraculous things with that translation. That was the first, that was the first complete translation of the Bible into English. Uh, probably, probably somewhere near 98% of the King James, the 1611 King James Bible came from the Coverdale Bible. So, um, so yeah, uh, Whenever you hold up your Bible, you're holding up the Word of God. Um, the oh yeah, they yeah that it was it it was the beheadings drawn and quartered. I mean, when you get out of the history of English translation or the history of really any translation, it gets uh, it gets intense. Now here, I want to make another point for you. I want to show you something. I believe it's on the uh, on the back of your uh, that of that sheet. In the United States, four percent of the population cannot read at a first grade level. Fourteen percent of the population reads at a first through third grade level. 34% of the population reads at a 4th to 5th grade level. 36% of the population reads at a 6th to 8th grade level. 12% reads at a 10th grade or higher. 10% read at a 10th to 12th grade level. And only 2% of the adult population of the United States reads at a graduate level, at a college level. Why does that matter? That matters because when you're reading the Bible, if you the what what social scientists tell us is that most people can read for comprehension about one or two grade levels below what they can test at. So like if you're gonna sit down and read for an hour, 
if you read at the 10th grade level, you're not going to read a 10th grade textbook for an hour straight and not get weary. Now, if you read at a 12th grade level, it's like, oh man, I love this. Have any of you ever gone back and like read Hardy Boys or Nancy Drew Mysteries once you got into college or high school and you're like, man, that seemed like such incredible literature whenever I was in the 8th grade and all that. But man, it's so simple now. Or I, I used to love to read Encyclopedia Brown when I was a kid. And I thought those were like the most complex mysteries I'd ever seen when I was in the fifth grade. And when my boys got old enough for me to let them start reading them, I went back and read them and I realized, you know what, I can read an Encyclopedia Brown in like two minutes and get it just like that. But it's because we're up, okay? When we talk about devotional reading, like reading the Bible for it to saturate and sink in, usually you'll be most successful if you read a translation that is at a reading level that is at or just a little bit below your normal reading level. Uh, to give you an instance, most newspapers and magazines or now blogs and all that, they try to write at a 7th or 8th grade reading level because the vast majority of Americans read at a 10th grade or under, so they want their reading, their writing to be very accessible to the majority of the population. I want you to look at English translations. Whenever they do, whatever they look and say, okay, what, what is the reading level for this translation? Well, the, the New International Reader's Version and the New Century Version are both written at a third grade reading level, which means they break sentences up and make longer sentences shorter and use shorter words in order to get to, to that level. The, the message is at a fourth, fifth grade level. God's Word... Uh, Translation is at a fifth grade level. Why would an NIRV or a New Century Version, what would that be really good for? If you work with children and you want children to learn to begin to read their Bible for themselves, would you give them, a, would you give them an ESV on the 10th grade level and say you need to learn how to read the English Standard Version when they're in third grade? And you could do that. And there are some third graders, they, they would work their way through it. But man, that'd be hard, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it be better to give them an NIRV and let them begin to read the Bible and read a chapter a day from the time they're little going up and learn how to have their devotion and then graduate them up to a, uh, to a more formal equivalent whenever they get into junior high or high school and their reading's a little bit better? Or what if somebody is learning English as a second language and they don't have a copy of Scripture in their own language and they want to they study when we were overseas, we used the NIRV a ton because most Filipinos learned English in school, but they still weren't proficient in English. They're proficient in their target language. So letting them read something that we would say was an elementary version. If you have someone who's, who's learning to read as an adult, much better to give them a, a translation that is lower on this English skill. That's the readability scale. When it moves on up, the New Living, and then you get the New King James, CSB, CB are all 7th grade reading level. One of the reasons I like the, the Christian Standard Bible is because it's written at a 7th grade reading level, which means the majority of adults can read it with comprehension without having to go look up a dictionary or without having to, to stop after a page or two and, and rest their brain. So you want to give them something accessible, but it's also something that was written with formal, with, uh, with formal equivalents, which means it's a word-for-word -word translation. 
So, so choosing your translation, readability also matters. Okay, a paraphrase, the, the, the original Living Bible. Now, the New Living Translation is a translation, but the, New, the Living Bible was a paraphrase, which was somebody putting the Bible into their own words, similar to a commentary. It's, it's, it can be a good practice to paraphrase things, but it's even more important to, uh, um, to have a translation to start with the original. Okay, when you're choosing a modern translation, the, the, the copy of the Bible that you're going to use, you need to use modern English. It needs to be based on the Hebrew and Greek text. You want to know that you're dealing with something that is just one one language, just one jump from the original to what you're reading. I think your wisest to have as your study Bible a Bible that was done by a committee and not by an individual. I, the message can be fun. It can be good for devotional reading. I would not recommend it for Bible study because Eugene Peterson is a scholar in his own right, but Eugene Peterson can be kind of weird sometimes. And, and you're dealing with one man's take. Okay, that's problematic for me. I would much rather have, I, as much as I love to say, and the, the people used to say of the Holman Christian Standard, which was the forerunner of the CSB, that it was the hardcore Southern Baptist Bible because Southern Baptist translated it. I, y'all, you're not going to find anyone that's any more convictionally Baptist than I am. But I don't want just a convictional Baptist translating. I want to know I want to make a Methodist wrestle with using baptizo as a transliteration instead of translating it. I want to say, yeah, what does that mean again? Immerse. Dunk. I mean, I'm, I'm being a little facetious, but I mean, they struggle with it. That's where they'll come back and they'll say, no, that's what that means in the New Testament. That's why it's supposed to be that way. It is important to know the background of your Bible because that's what gives you the greatest confidence of what am I doing? How you're using it matters. The NIRV, the New Living Translation, those. If someone comes to me and says, "Hey, I want to, I want to read through the Bible this year," I'm going to say, "Well, tell me what you read. What's your favorite stuff?" If they say, "Man, I really love to read molecular biology text." I mean, I'm going to give them anything. It doesn't matter. They're going to be fine. If they said to me, yeah, you know, I like reading USA Today. Or I like reading some popular magazine. But you know what? You need to think about a CSB. Or maybe you would enjoy the New Living Translation or something like that because it's going to be easier to read. You'll read it longer. You'll sit down and read 20 minutes or 30 minutes or 40 minutes at a time instead of just five minutes. Man, if they're doing that, now if they say, no, you know, I want to study... I would like to really break down a passage and, and I would like to do, I'd like to learn how to do uh, a diagram of the, of the syntax of the passage. Well, I'm taking them straight to either the ESV or the Christian Standard or New King James or New American Standard because they have to make sure that they're, they're seeing the verbs as the verbs and not as a combination that something that was written in the active tense would moved into passive tense. It's important, depending on what they're going to use it for. I would tell most of you, the very best thing you can do is get you a little digital Bible on your phone. Pick the Bible and get a print Bible of your favorite translation 
But I think everybody, if they're going to say, I want to do Bible study, if, unless you're going to be able to go back and work with original languages, if you will get three or four good English translations that are, that are relatively across the spectrum, and, and you'll compare those translations, you'll discover that they are, they are usually spot on. I mean, you, you can, they just track really close to each other. If there's a discrepancy, if they've, if they've added more words or if they've used a different word order, you know there was something in the underlying language that made them wonder, what order should we put this sentence in? And that's where you say, okay, I need to find out why. Why is it different? And that's where you go to a commentary or you go, you go study, you say, okay, what is the, what's the decision I'm supposed to make here? But you need a formal equivalence. You need a word-for-word translation to be able to ask those kind of questions. Okay. Stephen, I'm terrible. I mean, we're already at 740 or whatever it is. Y'all, this is just the first half of what was going to be my two hours. So I'm, I'm, going, to, I'm going to have to learn how to scrunch even more than I've been doing. Yeah, we're just going to take open form questions tonight on this part, and I'll, I'll move into the part B, and I'll figure out how to speed up. Yes, ma'am. The, okay, the Amplified Bible is, is a paraphrase. What the Amplified Bible does is it takes every possible use of a word and fills them all in. It sounds like it would be a great idea, except it's not. And here's, and here's why. Have you ever looked something up in a dictionary? And if you've ever noticed, like for a lot of words, there'll be one, two, three, four, five. Okay, imagine in English, if instead of using the word, you used every possible definition of the word. Well, you wouldn't know what they were trying to say, would you? Uh, I'm trying to think of a good English example of that. Yeah, love. Okay, we say love. Now, love can have a lot of different meanings, can it? I can talk about loving my wife. If I say, I love Susie. Y'all know what I mean? What if I say, I love ice cream? Am I saying the same thing as I'm saying I love Susie when I say I love ice cream? I hope not. Okay? I mean, the, 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 the nuance that's there, you, you fill in the blank. You know the kind of love I have for my wife is entirely different than the kind of love I have for a food. But if I said... I love, enjoy, I'm enticed by, think the flavor is good. I mean, to flesh all those things out about Susie, you're like, no, that's not what you meant. You meant I adore her. Okay? The Amplified Version doesn't make a contextual decision. So in that sense, it kind of leaves you, and sometimes people think, well, I can choose any of those, and this is the one I like best for this. No. One of the things you'll learn as we go in, context determines meaning every time. Context determines meaning. We're going to learn how to, how to broaden context, how to look at context. And context will tell you what, which word or which translation of a particular word should have been used. Yes, sir. No... <laughs> For non-religious Hebrew text, he, he said, 
that, that I'd mentioned there were other uh, non-Bible Hebrew texts. Mo- most of what you get, out what we I'd call the Apocrypha, those are, those are more nationalistic than they are religious uh, from that era. They, they help a good bit, but they have a, they have a quasi-religious nature. Uh, there's going to be there's going to be a whole lot less Hebrew, non, non-religious focused Hebrew text because even like, like I said, the, the, the Apocrypha of Bell and the Dragon, there are a few other uh, letters and scraps from the, second, from the Second Temple period that would work, but that's about it because they didn't, they, like I say, until the Dead Sea Scrolls came, there was a big dearth of biblical Hebrew that was there. So you're you're pretty much going to be dealing with, uh, I think you're pretty much dealing with the Masoretic text, and then some of the some of the stuff from Qumran is uh, uh, is Hebrew, but it's but it's got like uh, where they uncovered some of that. They've also uncovered like some daily journals or diaries or stuff from different people that were that were also written in Hebrew. Those give some, but there's they're not as broad. Now when you get into Greek, obviously you've got both classical Greek and uh, and period Greek and the works of Josephus and all those kind of things that add in, but um, uh, but no, I mean the the apocrypha really are the other big kind of mine for for Hebrew context and words. Ah, uh, I mean basically it's the it's the it's the um, it's the yeah it's the NASV and the and the RSV kind of conjunct. It's I mean it's a it's a good solid translation. I'm y'all, I really am. I for me, the Christian standard is what I use now and I did Holman. I really like before that, I was pretty fond of the New King James. Uh, my uh, my first pastorate at uh, Chelsea, I switched from um, um, King James and I'd used I'd used NIV. It was okay, but man, most of my people weren't NIV folks. The problem was I do well with the 1776 um, King James, not 1790. Yeah, the 1611 King James is uh, is really is just barely out of Middle English. Uh, the the 1611 King James, if you get out of familiar passages, whenever you deal with the 1611 King James, it is about the equivalent of modern German for being able to understand. Like if you go read the book of Habakkuk. If you read the book of Habakkuk in modern German and you read the book of Habakkuk in, in, the, in the, it was the early, early modern English of the, of the 1611 King James, whenever you laid that, they, let, they did this test back in the early 90s. They laid a chapter out of Habakkuk in front of uh, 12th grade students and asked them to translate the 1611 and, the, and just a modern German and they did better they did better with modern German being able to guess what the words were than they did with the uh, Middle English. And I mean, there, and there's a lot of reasons for that. But when I read that, I thought, man, but which didn't matter. I mean, the King James that most of you, if you pick up just a King James version, unless it says 1611, you're dealing with the 1790 update of the King James. The new King James is really, really Good. I mean, it's a. It, it would be, be the other one I'd use. Uh, I still, um, when you read the Psalms, the Psalms are are poetry. They're they're poetic, so they're supposed to have 
rhythm to them. And, uh, and one of the problems is Hebrew poetry is not rhyming. We, we use rhyming poetry, which really came out of French. Hebrew poetry uses parallelism and, and a lot of acrostic to, to get its... its that, that's what it uses for its memory devices in poetry. That does not translate well. I mean, like if y'all ever did the whole little A is for apple, B is for ball, all that. Okay, that's how the 119th Psalm is written. Each strophe is a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It all starts with that. Okay, you try translating word for word and getting the right letter. I mean, saying I need to find an English letter that starts with A that also has the same meaning as this word that starts with an aleph in Hebrew. You, yeah, you can't do it. It's just, you're like, oh no. I mean, it just will bend your brain. But the King James and the New King James, when they wrote, they paid a lot of attention to, to how the spoken words would sound. Whenever they translated, they translated with uh, less of a, of a formal and more of a thought for thought, but they tried to get, that's why whenever we say, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside, that, that has, that has, has rhythm to it, doesn't it? You can do some modern translations. They are very accurate, but they just don't read. They don't read as well. So when I read the Psalms, I, I usually will read through the Psalms. Um, and I don't know if you've ever noticed that if you start with the date that it is and you read five Psalms a day, you read through Psalms in a month. Have you ever done that? Yeah, I, mean, I, I did that today. I started with the 17th and then I did the 47th and then I did the 77th and on and on. When I do that, I will always switch in my Bible from CSB to New King James because it just, it does the Psalms better. Um, so that's the hit. Y'all have been incredibly patient. I'm just so impressed that everybody has stayed awake. I apologize for, uh, for how, say, it's, it's the first lecture, Lee, I'm, I took twice as long to say half as much, so we'll have to fix that. You're no, we, welcome to stick around and Bible chat with us uh, following this time. Maybe you had a question, you feel me like, man, I don't want to ask that in front of everybody. We understand, it's okay. Here's a few things I want to say before we wrap this up, some takeaways. What I wanted you to get out of this, if you got, I mean, if you're like, abbreviate this down for me. Readability of your Bible matters. All right, you need to find a Bible you can read. Such a practical nugget. I've never heard the, the, the test level versus down. And, and that explains why even when I read the ESV devotionally, because that's what I preach out of, I'm struggling, right? To stay in the game, reading the Bible. You want to read through the Bible in a year? Get a readable Bible uh, to do so. You'll really enjoy that. The continuum of Bible translations. Uh, uh, Jan asked a question about the Amplified Bible. I mean, in one way or another, uh, there, it does appear on the continuum, right, as a more word-for-word translation. Just know, when you look at that, you can Google International Bible Society. You can look up, they've put up all those translations, and then they categorize them more word-for-word or thought-for-thought. There's a continuum there. But uh, some tips would be making sure you have a good word-for-word Bible, and I will recommend the ESV Study Bible all day long. It was written by a team of people. It's got lots and lots of commentary, and the commentary of those specific works 
were scholars of that work. So the guys that wrote the gospel, like for instance, I have a John MacArthur study Bible, but it's all John MacArthur, right? When you go to the ESV study Bible, I'm talking about people who've done their life work on the gospel of John. I want to read their thoughts on that. And there would have been two or three of them, maybe. Um, Word study. This is just where I want to help. I had a friend years ago when we were first starting the church and and, and he would talk about word studies, but he would want to go to just like a King James level of word study. The, when we talk about a word study, which we'll help you on, we're going back to critical text, which means we're going to Greek and Hebrew. And so if I would bring up in conversation when we would get in Bible chat, and I would say, yeah, but the Greek word, and he would say, well, I don't really care what the Greek word is. And I'm going, no, I don't care what the translated English word is. I care about what the critical text said. So the Greek word matters more than the English word. And I want you to get that because when we, we, when we work up into academic critical study, we need to talk about Greek and Hebrew meaning words, not English translated words. Um, that's really important. Um, funny story about translation one time, and I'll close... One time I was in Latvia, I was preaching to a bunch of uh, soldiers, and my translator is translating, and I'm like, hello, my name is Lee, and we've just had a good time singing, and I tell this story that I had heard about the miry clay, because I sing a song about the miry clay, and how soldiers would get caught in a pit, or they would put them in a pit of miry clay, and they couldn't get out of the pit, and that's what the psalmist is thinking, of, you know, and we're talking about this. Somewhere in there, the translator goes thought for thought instead of word for word with me. Because I'm saying long phrases, and he just says them really quickly. And I'm like, oh, whatever, we'll just keep going. And this is where when we talk about the word for word, thought for thought, the soldiers start looking at me really weird, like you're a big fat liar. And the more they looked at me, they thought I said I was thrown into a military prison pit of miry clay and that I was delivered by God. And the more the story went, at the end, I was so mad at my translator for messing the story up. I was like, these guys went from being their hearts being hooked to investigating there's no way this young boy was thrown into a miry clay pit and God delivered him. And so... All that aside, just translation matters. When we talk about grasping God's Word, I know this can feel a little dry, but it is very, very important to come to critical text and understand these things. So you're welcome to stick around. I pray that this has been a blessing to you. Let me close this in prayer. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to just think about all Scripture being God-breathed. Lord, I pray that we would leave tonight knowing when we read the Scriptures, uh, Lord, to remember to call upon You, Lord, and, and allow the Holy Spirit, the Helper whom Jesus has sent, Lord, uh, to, to minister to us through the Word of God. I pray that it would become um, for us the, the sweet honey that the Scriptures talk about, the tasting and seeing of that the Lord is good. I uh, pray that we would meditate on your word day and night. I pray that it would start to permeate our soul maybe deeper as we learn more about this. So Lord, grow our hearts, grow our love for your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.
Thank you for being here tonight. You're welcome to stick around.